about what God's doing in our church this year. Um, I was with your kids before coming in here. I was back in the kids' corner, and uh, we went on a little field trip. I brought them. I brought them to the hallway first, and I showed them the, the TV in the back, and we were showing the service in here, and we started talking about what's going on in the service. And, and they were in church last week. We had family worship, and so many of them were in church last week, and we were talking about you know things they saw last week and now things they were seeing on the screen. And then, and then we went on a further field trip, and they were excellent, man. They were really quiet, and I, I took them. I brought them into the uh, cry room here, which if you've never been in that room, you always wonder what that double glass is right there. That's a cry room. Like, so moms and babies, if, if you know they're really young, and then you want to take them in there and... Yeah, there you go. So we went in there and uh, we packed in there all the kids and they were just kind of like staring at you guys. They were like in awe. And we were talking about what are we doing in here? You know, why is Mr. Preston standing on the stage and everybody else is sitting out here? What are these steps for? What is this table with the big white cloth on it for and the bread and that and that grape juice? What is it up there for? And why can't I just run up and eat some? And and why are people standing? And then you started to clap. And why are they clapping? Who are they? Are they clapping for Mr. Preston? Who are they clapping for? Why do they pray when they start? Why were those two people up here talking to everyone? Why, why do some people sit? Why do some people stand? Why, why, are those, why are those people with their hands in there? We were talking about some of that. So I only say that to you to say, one, they were watching you. And two, they're always watching you. And, and three, we do the things we do with your kids very intentionally. Go home. When I was talking to them and they were sitting in that room watching what's going on in here, man, they were wide-eyed. Okay. And I know last week when many of them were in here and we were singing and they were they were coloring and some of them were just wandering around looking like they were lost and others were crawling under the seats. It doesn't seem like they're listening, but they are. And so go home and build upon what I shared with them back there. Say, hey, Mr. Darrell, he told me he took you back in that room and you talked about some of the stuff and you saw the guy up there playing the guitar and you heard us singing. And we were we seemed to be like we were singing to somebody. We weren't just singing. Talk about that stuff. Yeah, that's part of what God is doing. Uh, I sense that you guys are starting to ask questions that maybe you've never asked of God before. Uh, it seems that our church is praying like it's never prayed before. It seems that overall, like I just sense you guys are seeking the will of God, maybe in a way you never have before. And God's, God's ready to do some amazing, some amazing things here in our church. I sense that, I, I think God is sort of, as he watches all this, he he slid towards the edge of his throne. I like to get mental pictures, right? It's it just it's helpful to me, and I just imagine that as God is recognizing all this, he slid to the edge of his throne, and he's and he's taking notice of the sincere hearts of the overall body of Christ that is Cornerstone, saying, "God, we want you to become bigger, and we're becoming less." And, and have your way. He senses that sincerity among this body that we're, that we're trying as hard as we can to say, God, we're getting out of the way as best we can, and, and you have your way. I think, he's, I think he's taking notice of that. So I want to I pray as we start, and I want to pray that the Holy Spirit be the one to fan that spark into an into a all-out blaze in this place. Amen? Yeah, you want to pray that with me? All right, let's pray. Dearest Father, uh, men and women and boys and girls in this place are picking up their crosses like never before. Not out of guilt or duty, but out of a responsive love for the goodness you have shown us. We're catching glimpses of your holiness around here, and it, it is changing us as it should. Give us more, God. Give us more glimpses of your bigness. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, God, testify to our hearts regarding, regarding Jesus. 
the one who gave you to us as a, as a love gift. Take this flicker of abandonment and selflessness that we have here and breathe power into it. Fan this grass fire into an all-out raging inferno, Holy Spirit. Start in our hearts. And use this word this morning to give us another glimpse. We're waiting on you, Holy Spirit. We long to leave this place amazed and therefore changed. Amen. Amen? Yeah, is that what you want? All right. Let's look into the Word. I know that many of you are, uh, are in a place as God is doing all this. You're in a place that is it's kind of like uncharted Christian territory for you. I mean, God seems to be doing so much in so many of your lives, and you're being challenged, and, and it's hard work. All right? And make no mistake. Like he's, some of this tweaking and sharpening and molding is not easy, and it's not, it's not without some pain and sacrifice. And some of you are... are you're, you're leaning into it and you're doing, you're doing your part and you're seeking God. And you are saying, you are saying, we lay our life down for you, God. We, you can have all of us. But as you're doing that, some of you are saying, man, I've not been in this place before. This is, this is, uncharted, this is uncharted territory. And those, those, those sort of times, those uncharted territory Christian lifetimes, they're, they're both exciting and scary at the same time, aren't they? Yeah. They're a little bit uh, unsettling at times. I remember back, I guess it was probably eight years ago, that uh, Kimberly and I led a trip of our college ministry students to uh, France. It was a prayer walking mission trip. And uh, if you haven't been out of the country, um, well, if you have been out of the country, you know what I mean when I say that uh, the traffic situation outside of America is just different. Okay. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You think you go down to Spaghetti Junction down here and people are going crazy at five o'clock because you're just, you know, going slow. Uh, It's bumper cars in other countries. okay? and nobody really seems to care. That's just how it is. Right. I remember we got off the airport, uh, got off the airplane in Paris at the airport and we went out. We found our little taxi van thing and uh, there was a group of us. We got in the taxi van and we were headed towards uh, towards our hotel, like a 45 minute ride. And I thought, well, I'm the, you know, I'm the group leader. So, you know, I'm going to check this place out. So I'm sitting up front. So I'm sitting up with a taxi guy and I was, you know, going to try and talk to him a little bit, but he spoke French. And so even though I had two years of French in high school, some reason I don't know any French. And so I'm sitting up there and I can't really talk to him and he's just going and, you know, he's trying to talk to me and I have no idea. I just gave him the paper with where we're going, you know, and then I'm just sitting back. Now that 45 minute ride, I want to tell you that I was in a, in like a, a constant, Flex like this. And I couldn't say anything because the guy couldn't understand me anyway. And I didn't want to say anything because then I wouldn't be I'd be like the annoying American guy. Right. That's sitting in this this guy's taxi. So I didn't want to say anything. I was trying to play it cool. But I promise you, man, I was like I was cramping up by the time I got to the hotel because the whole time I was like uh, and the van. It like it was one of those vans where I think the engine was on the roof or in the back or something because there was no front. And so the cars that were around us were right here. And I'm like, uh and he's just pushing people out of the way. And they literally bumper cars, man, he's bumping people, pushing people, you know, blowing on the horn and all kinds of stuff was going on. And I was just like, man, I was petrified. And, you know, if you've been somewhere else, it's, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. Um, I'm convinced this is why the majority of the people, once we got there, the majority of people don't drive. Okay. The majority of people use what's called the metro. The metro in Paris, it's their rail system. It's their, it's their commuting system. It is, it's like the Atlanta, uh, Marta on steroids. Okay. It's the Marta times a hundred. I mean, it's, it's massive. And the only hope you have as an American is to find in different places around town these little maps. Put up that map 
Keith, yeah, you find these maps. And this is the transit system. Like all those lines, those aren't streets. There are streets under there and around there and stuff. But these are all the different, like, metro routes. Now, that's, it's like you look at that and you're like, I, I have no idea. The only hope that you have, right, is to look at these maps, to find one of these maps on the side of the road or in the train itself, and look for that, you know, universal, uh, you are here arrow, right? Yeah? And that you are here arrow kind of brings like some level of uh, calmness and at least, you know, like direction. Like, okay, at least I know where I, I am. I could start to find, I think I need to go here, okay? And they had the little icon of the Eiffel Tower, so somehow I just got to connect, you know, connect the, the lines, okay? But that you are here arrow, it kind of brings a little bit of comfort, doesn't it? A little bit of, a little bit of direction. Whether you're in Paris, whether you're in Disney World or at the mall, that little arrow that says you are here brings a certain level of uh, calmness and direction. In this process, guys, in this process of um, God becoming bigger and you becoming smaller, sometimes I think we... Uh, we start to feel well, lost. We start to feel lost. Sometimes the bigger God gets, the more massive we understand him to be, the more holy we understand him to be, there's this danger that we, we start to feel insignificant and inconsequential. Um, sometimes getting a glimpse into God's grandeur is kind of like looking at that Paris Metro map without that you are here deal. You just kind of feel completely lost. You look at it and you think, where in the world am I in this grand scheme of things? Yeah. For some of you, God is becoming this, uh, this God of the major galaxy. Put that up, Heath. You're starting to realize that we serve a God who made something that massive. And as you begin to see how big he is and his, his creation declares his, his glory, his declaration His creation tells us something about who he is. We start to see that he gets bigger and bigger. We start to feel smaller and smaller. And in in some sense, that's good and right. But sometimes I wonder if as God gets big like that, that we start to feel insignificant, inconsequential. And we wonder, like I wondered looking at that Metro Paris map, like I'm lost. This is so huge and massive. Where do I where do I fit in? I need one of those. I need one of those from God. You are here, arrows. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be helpful? This morning, I want to give you one of those. I want to give you one of those. You are here, arrows, for your relationship with God. Because no matter how massive this God is, the God of the God of that, no matter how massive he is no matter how big he gets no matter how holy and righteous we begin to understand him to be you need not assume you need not assume that you are insignificant and that very thing makes him even bigger it makes him even bigger so here's what i want to give you i want to give you one of these put that up there Heath. i want to, I want to give you like your dot I want, to, I want to show you where you are this morning a little bit you know just Help and the scriptures do this in a number of ways. I want to, I want to, one way. There's many, but I want to give you one way that for me, as I as I studied up on this and I was reading about this, it just sort of it just sort of gave me that okay. And all that God is here, I understand how I fit, and that that brings some calmness and it brings some direction to my life. I want it to do that for you as well. So uh, we need a jumping off point. So here's where we're going to go. Matthew 16, 
verse 18. Don't turn to there yet. I'll just read it to you. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus, Jesus says this, and this is as good a place to start as any. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Remember those words? They're words of certainty and they're words, they're very personal words. I, Jesus says, me, I will build my church. It's mine and I'm going to do it. And then he adds this, this weird phrase, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The, the gates of Hades, that phrase, it's really a, it's a Hebrew euphemism that simply means death. Okay? To them, it, it meant death. So here's what Jesus is saying. He said, very definitely, most assuredly, you can, you can mark it down, guarantee it. I will build my church personally, certainly I will do that to the degree that check this out. Not even death will stand in the way, not his death, nor the death of those who would become the church. I'll build my church. That's people. That's souls. He's going to he's going to gather souls together. And he says me building, gathering those souls together. It's unstoppable. Because I'm involved in it, for one, and not me, but I'm talking as if I'm Jesus right here. I'm involved in it. And even the worst thing you can think of, like kill me, that won't stop it. And then those who follow me, they'll die too. Death will not stop this thing. I mean, what else could there be? All right. So Jesus is he's doing something here. Let me show you why this is Titus one one. I do want you to turn here and I don't put this up on the screen very often, but I'm going to put a couple of these up on the screen. But if you can track it down in your Bible quick, do that. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit more than I usually do, but I've got to connect some of these metro map dots for you. Okay, so we can get the big picture of who God is, his hugeness. Right. I want you to see what's going on. And then I want to I want to I want to zoom in and say you are here. All right. All right. That's where we're going. You get it. You track on me. All right. So so. What is this thing about Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church and nothing will stand against it? Titus 1.1, it gives us a glimpse into what this, this means. Uh, we typically gloss over the introductory verses to any of these letters, but, but that's, that's not a wise thing to do. Okay, He says a lot of good stuff in just these first couple verses. Uh, when we went through the book of Titus, we, we looked at a, a lot of this stuff, but I want, to, I want to chase one thing to its end that we really didn't chase to an end when we went word for word through the book of Titus. Paul knew better than anyone where he was in this big scheme of what God was doing. In this huge galaxy of God, Paul knew better maybe than anyone of where his you are here arrow is, where he landed, where he fit into things. Now watch, watch some of the things that he said here. Let me turn to Titus because I'm behind you guys and I'm yapping and I haven't turned there yet. Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant. He knows who he is, right? You're going to find out two things. Generally, he is a servant of God, just like the rest of us. He qualifies himself as a servant of God. Number two, specifically, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his specific role. He's called as an apostle to the church. All right. But just like the rest of us, he is a servant of God. Now, check this out. This is what Paul is for. The next word. What is he for? What is he about? And we've seen this before. We've talked about it before. Paul's life is given to what? One thing. And it is the souls of men on this earth. He would rather die if he could, because that means he gets to go and be with Jesus. But now he says, if I'm going to stay here, I'm here for you. He's here for souls. Now, watch, he's going to unpack that. He's going to say that thing here in the first verse. I'm here as a bondservant and an apostle specifically for the faith of the chosen of God. For their faith that he might help bring them 
to faith. That's that's their justification. But not only that, he's here as part of their sanctification and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, to growing them up in the truth and the knowledge of the word. So he's here for their justification and their faith. And he's here for their sanctification, that he would help grow them up in the word and knowledge and in truth. And he's not just here for those two, but all the way to the completion, to their glorification. So you got his he's part of this justification Sanctification and this glorification process, he sees himself. That's his role. That's his you are here line. That's what Paul is about. All right. In hope of eternal life. That's our glorification. That's what's to come. That's the end result of this thing. But then he adds this phrase. He adds this phrase at the end of verse two that that zooms back out. All right. He's told us where he is. All right. It's like Google Maps. You're on street level. And now he's zoomed out in this last phrase to let us know in the big scheme of things exactly where his arrow is in the galaxy. Right. All right. So now look at this. This whole salvation thing that Paul has given his life to. It's of God. He says, I've given myself for the faith of those chosen of God. For their justification, sanctification, and their glorification. Now, all three of those wrapped up together. God, who, by the way, cannot lie. All right? Hold on to that. Promised long ages ago. And so, big picture here. What's going on? Paul's, Paul's here for the faith of the chosen of God. But the big scheme of things, the galaxy-sized things, he knows, he knows something. That God is up to something. And he says, God has made this promise in fact this salvation thing this whole justification sanctification glorification plan it all comes out of this grand scheme of god's he has a he has a purpose in this in that he made a promise and when did he make the promise he made the promise literally before time began before the beginning okay So outside of time and space, as you and I know it, he made this promise long before in eternity past. He made this promise and check this out. He says, now, now this God who made this promise about this salvation, about those he has chosen coming to faith. He's not a liar, meaning he's doing what he said he would do a long time ago. Now, you got to ask the question right here, right? You got to ask the question, who is this promise to? God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Who has he promised to? Who has he covenanted with? All right. Well, it couldn't be us, right? Because we weren't there. This is before time began. This is before literally the chronos. This is before the beginning. It is in eternity past. And we can't understand that, but that's how it's that far ago. It was long before us. So the promise isn't to us. It can't be. We're not around. Was the promise maybe to the angels? Some people suggest that. Most scholars don't believe that the angels were actually created yet. And you need to understand that the angels are created beings as well in a similar fashion to us. They are not eternal in that they go into eternity past. They are created beings as well. And so most scholars believe they weren't created yet either. So it's it's not to them. And even if they were created yet, the promise can't be to them. The promise of this salvation purpose can't be to them because they long to look at these things. They're not they're not part of the redemptive issue, are they? All right. So who is this? Who is this promise to? Second Timothy chapter one. Turn back a couple pages to the left in your Bible. It'll be on the screen, I think, as well. Second Timothy one. There's a couple of verses that Paul writes to Timothy that I think inform 
who this promise is to. It helps us to understand. All right. And here's another point on that, you know, massive metro map as we're trying to put together. What is God up to in this? I mean, Titus 1 1, God is involved in this thing. Paul's for the faith of the chosen. But he but he is behind this in this promise. And it's 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 trustworthy and it's eternal. All right, so let's let's figure out what it is. Second Timothy one, verse eight and nine. Second Timothy one verse eight and nine. Therefore, Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of your Lord. That's the gospel. Or of me, his prisoner. That's Paul. He's he's the servant. He's the he's the bond servant to Christ. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. All right. That's the redemptive plan. That's what Jesus did to redeem humanity. Suffer with me for the gospel according to the power of God. This gospel, it is according to what? What is it? What is it based on? It's based on the power of God. What is it not based on? Verse nine. It's not it's not based on us. All right. Who has saved us. This is what God has done. Okay, this gospel deal. It is according to the power of God, who, by the way, saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. So this is outside of us. He's he's up to something grand here outside of us, not according to our works, but according to his own. What is the word? Purpose. He's doing something and grace, which was granted us, which was gifted to us, given to us in Christ Jesus from and here we get the same phrase, the same idea from eternity past from before time began. So look at it backwards before time began. The salvation thing, it it came in Christ and it was given to us according to God's grace because of his purpose, which isn't based on us, but it's based on him. You see how that backs backs up? All eternity in Christ Jesus. Who is this promise to? Who do you think this promise is to? Same same word in eternity past. We get this gift in Christ Jesus. Not to us, not to the angels. I, I think it's a it's a promise to the Son from the Father. I think it's a I think it's a promise from the Father to the Son. Now listen. I didn't make this up, okay? I didn't just come up with this on my own, so don't don't worry too much. But follow me here, okay? Um, it's a promise between the Father and Son. Apparently, at some point in eternity past, long before you and I were around, the Father so loved the Son that He gave Him a gift of redeemed humanity. That would one day be claimed by the son who comes to receive it and die for it. Okay. We are the promise in that way then, aren't we? We are the promise from the father to the son. That promise that Paul talks about in Titus that was long before us, way back. From the God who cannot lie. It was a promise 
from a loving father to his dear son. And the promise was a redeemed humanity. It was it was you and I chosen of God as a gift of love for the son. All right. Now, hold on to that. All right. Chosen in eternity past, the names of the redeemed were written in the book of life. And then in time and space, called by grace to faith in Christ so that we could be the gift to Christ for fulfilling the eternal purpose of the Father. All right. Is this getting big for you? Part of this is you should be a little bit like, I don't. That's huge. Okay. So what is the purpose is, is the purpose, is this eternal purpose so that we could be redeemed so that we could live our best life now and, you know, have a, have a great deal going on here on earth and, you know, things would improve for us. Is that it? I mean, I hope not. I hope not. I hope that's not it. What is the father up to? He's up to giving us as a love gift, as a promise, an eternal promise to the son. And he's going to he's going to see it through to the end. He cannot lie. All right, so you say, what kind of gift are we? Well, we're the gift that uh, keeps on giving. We're the gift that keeps on giving. We're the gift that in eternity past, the Father gave the Son a people who would serve and praise and glorify the Son forever and ever and ever and ever into all eternity future. It won't stop. The song, the praise will not end. The service will not end. Now that, that is a gift, isn't it? I mean, you get this big picture of what God is, the Father has done for the Son out of love. There's a lot going on in heaven. When we read the book of Revelation, what do we see? We find those whose names were written in the book of life joining into the chorus of the angels to declare, Worthy is the Lamb. Forever and ever and ever and ever. That's that's what we're for. The Father gives the Son a gift that a people, a redeemed people, will be for Him, through Him, to serve, praise, and glorify Him forever and ever. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation. That's what we do. All right. Turn to John 6. A couple more angles here. John 6. I want to show you Jesus' thoughts. And I got to hurry here, so turn quick. John 6, verse 37. I want to show you some of Jesus' thoughts on the matter that help give you some perspective into this eternal promise and how we fit into the eternal promise. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He cannot lie. And the one who comes to me, I will, Jesus says, I will certainly not cast out. Why would he not do that? Is it because we're so lovely in particular? He loves us. Don't miss the fact that he died for us. But do you understand that we are more than just valuable to him in and of ourselves? We, as a redeemed humanity, as God hands us to the Son, we become a love gift to the Son that the Son will not let go of. The Son loves the Father, and the gift that the Father gives the Son will be 
will be held for sure. All right. For I have come down from heaven. Verse 38, Jesus, I've come down from heaven, not not for my own will, but the will of him who what sent me. See eternal purpose in this. Jesus did not come down here just to mill around on his own and see what might happen. He was sent by the father. Thirty thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me. I lose nothing, but I raise them up on the last day so that we get that picture in Revelation. Forty. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise them up on the last day. You see this eternal purpose and plan? This this exchange? All right. Flip to 44. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see, so what we get here is, if you're hearing this, we get, we get certainty once again. We get certainty once again. This is, this is something that the Father is up to out of love for the Son. And we also get eternal purpose in this. Are you getting the magnitude of, of what we find ourselves involved in? Turn to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And rightfully so, he's going to pray not only for himself, which is common of a high priest that he would pray for a sacrifice before making a sacrifice. He would dedicate the sacrifice, which in Jesus case, he's going to be the sacrifice. So it's it's it makes sense that he would have a high priestly prayer before his sacrifice. But he's he's got a view towards the cross now. And he's not only going to pray for himself, he's going to pray specifically for the redeemed humanity that God has gifted to him. And you're going to see something interesting here. Watch this. Uh, verse one, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And that that's the culmination of everything. OK, that's how this whole thing ends up. You'll see that in a second. Even as you gave him authority, even as you gave me, Jesus says, authority over all flesh, that all whom you have what given him may have eternal life. Now, you're going to see in seven verses, I think eight times he's going to say something about this gift that God has given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ. Whom you have what? Sent. I glorified you on earth. I did my job. Having accomplished the work. Which you have given me to do. Eternal purpose. Now father glorify me together with yourself. Alright. Bring me right back where I was in eternity past. With the glory which I had with you. Here's the same phrase. What does it say before the world was? I've manifested your name to the men whom you what gave me out of the world. They were yours. God had them and he what gave them to me and and they they kept your word. You see in this. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you for the words which you gave me. I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came from you. You sent me and they believe that you what sent me. I ask on their behalf. Now, this is an amazing statement here. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have what again given me for they are whose were they gods. They were yours, father. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And I've been glorified in them. And I'm no longer going to be in this world. 
and yet they themselves will be in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. And here's the whole petition of the chapter. The, the, whole, the whole reason for this whole long prayer is, Holy Father, keep them. All right, now check this out. Look back in verse 9. I ask on their behalf. Whose behalf? Those who you have given me. The ones you have sent me for. He says, I'm gonna, I got, Father, I'm going to ask you something. For those you have given me is this love gift. I'm going away. I'm coming to be, to be with you. I've got to go through this cross. And I'm going through waters that I, that I, don't, that I, don't, that I don't know. And I don't, I don't know that I'll be able to hold them. Because on the cross, we get that whole episode. Father, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knows because he says, you know, into, into your hands I commit my soul when he's there. He's not worried about himself. He prays for who? The gift. He prays for the promise. He says, listen, God, I can't hold it. Father, I'm not going to be able to hold it through this. You're going to have to hold it for me while I go through this deep water. Keep them which you have given to me. Isn't that amazing? And this whole idea that if God, if God in the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit doesn't have a hold of us, what potentially happens here? We are being cared for by the Son as a gift that was given to him by the Father, and he cherishes it, and he says, I'm going to the cross, and I don't know that I can hold it. Father, you hold your gift for me while I go through this. <laughs> it's amazing. Do you understand what's going on? In the, I mean, it, this is huge. This is huge. Romans 8.29. Listen to these words. For whom he foreknew and also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means we become like him. We start to look like him. So that he would be the firstborn or the chief one, Romans 8 says, among many brethren. What does the future look like for this gift, this redeemed humanity? What's going to happen is those he foreknew and predestined and drew and called and handed to the son and the son held and kept. Eventually, and as we uh, as we see him for who he is and our our bodies are transformed, we become like him. We become joint heirs with Jesus. We become brethren, brothers of our older brother, the chief one, the first fruit, the firstborn among all of us. That's what we become. You know, if you think about it, the, the greatest compliment is imitation. Isn't it that we become like him? What more could we do but become as much like him as possible? We imitate him and in heaven we become like him. That's where this gift is going. All right. And then he is the chief one among us. Now watch this. One more scene in this play. Turn to first Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 26. This is what is to come in the end. This is the culmination of this grand epic that we find ourselves with a part in. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. In the end, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, death even, will not, will not stand against it. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 27, and he quotes Psalm 8 here. Great, great passage. For he, that's God, the Father, has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's God, the Son. 
But when he says, and we get a qualification here from Paul, this is, this is very, this is awesome. But when he says, referring back to Psalm 8, when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is, he, capital H, is accepted who put all things under subjection to him. Do you, do you catch what that says? It's kind of a mouthful. He quotes Psalm 8 that says, One day all things will be put under the feet of the rightful owner and king of all the universe, Jesus. He'll get the title deed to the, to the world. We'll cry out, worthy is the lamb to unroll that scroll. It's yours. And as a king, a king would sit up on a, on a raised platform. And literally when a subject would come, they would bow down. And they would literally bow down to a level where they were below the king's feet. And if you were an enemy of the king and you were defeated by the king, the king would stomp on your head, stand on your neck over you to show you were in submission or in subjection to the king. So at some point, he says here, all the way back in Psalm, God in his divine inspiration here, all the way back in Psalm, he quotes here now in 1 Corinthians, God has said that one day all things in the culmination of things will become submitted under the feet of him, Jesus, from the Father to the Son, everything will fall underneath his feet. And then he gives this little qualification. But there's one who will not fall under subjection of the one who everything will fall under subjection of his feet. Who is it? It's the Father. There's one guy who doesn't fall at the feet of Jesus. It's, it's the God equal. It's the other part of the Trinity. It's the Father. Now, watch what happens here. All right. Fifteen. Twenty eight. When all things are subjected to him, that's the son, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who's that? It's the father who subjected all things to him so that God, Theos, may be all in all. What, what is this? Here's what it is. In the end, the gift that the son has received from the father in love, which he held on through, held on to, and in death handed it to the father and trusted it back to the father. This this gift that is that is this this eternal promise. We become like now the son and he is the chief one and we are subject to him. And then even he turns around with us now all in his likeness and says to the father who gave him the gift, here you are <laughs> in a reciprocation of love. Here you are. Do you understand what this is? Do you understand the magnitude of where you find yourself this little dot in? This is some grand inter. Trinitarian epic romance that we are now finding ourselves a part of. Wow. And he who cannot lie promised it before anything ever before. Now that's that's the big that's the big galaxy picture. Now let me tell you where you are. You're exactly where Paul was. Titus 1. Number one, you are a part of that plan, believer. 
whether you know it or not, recognize it or not, appreciate it or not. You are a part of that plan. You are part of the gift from the father to the son, which will go back to the father. And in the end, God in his completeness will be all in all. You're you're a part of that. Number two, believers, God is huge. I hope I hope this. This talk, this bouncing around from even passage to passage, I hope it it causes God to be amazing to you, like just blows your mind. But understand at the very same time that you as part of this love gift are far from insignificant, are far from inconsequential. Your part is an amazing one when you understand it in the context of the epic that God wrote before time eternal. He will build his church. He cannot lie. He promised. He promised the son. He promised it before the beginning. We were the promise. He promised us to him. You, me. The redeemed. He gave you as a gift. Christ was sent for you. His gift. He died for you. He holds you forever. He will not let you go. And one day he will hand you right back to the Father and the praise will never end. Worthy is he to receive his reward. John 17, 18. I didn't read this verse to you in the high priestly prayer. This is your you are here dot in all that bigness. John 17, 18 says, Jesus says this. Says, Father, just as you have sent me into the world, you know what he was sent for now. So I send them. And then he went on to pray for those who would not only hear his words and come to the Father, but those who would hear through those who have heard. Right? That's you and I. Down the line. And you want to know where your you are here arrow is? It's exactly where Paul said he was. I, Paul, an apostle of God. His very servant. Here it is. For the faith of the chosen of God. The righteousness and truth. To the point of their glorification in eternity. Which God himself promised. And he cannot lie. That's where you are. Not only are you part of the gift, you are part of gathering this gift. Yeah? You see your part in the, in the epic? You're part of the gift. I should blow you away. And now in here in time and space, Jesus, who came for the purpose of collecting his love gift, says to us, As the Father sent me, so now I send you. How does this fit into the scheme of our evangelism series? That's it. That's why we're here. That's your you are here arrow. In all this grandness. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song as we wrap up here. The words of the song are that uh, we lay down our life. We lay down our life in light of what we've just learned. 
Our response should be that we lay down our life. We take up our cross to win for the lamb, the reward of his suffering. To win for the lamb, the lost. I lay my life down. And that, I hope that's where you are. Believers, I hope, I, hope, I hope you know where your arrow is. That in time and space right now, in this, in this grand scheme of God's from eternity past, which will reach into eternity future, He desires to use you in this epic romance to gather the gift for the son he loves. You get to do that. How amazing is that? While at the same time, you are part of the gift. For the faith of those chosen of God, Paul spent his life and laid his life down. If you've not laid your life down, if God has been wooing you, if he has been drawing you, if he has been saying to you, come to me, I've paid your debt, and you have not responded. Scripture says if you have not been born again, reborn, this morning in order to be a part of the gift You need only accept the payment that Christ made for the gift. He died. He died for the gift that was his own. How amazing is that? You were his, given by the Father. He died for you because he so cherishes the gift of the Father. And the promise will be that he'll never let you go. Oh, if God is calling to you, don't leave, don't leave without saying, Jesus, worthy, worthy is the lamb to receive his reward, the reward of his sufferings, which is who? You. It's me. Give him what he deserves (laughs) and find your place in this epic romance. Amen. Stand, stand with us. What do you say?